Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Welcome to Season 7, where we will continue to delve into the world of coaching, learning and development. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. I'll now hand over to them to introduce themselves. Thanks, Phil. So, yeah, I'm Dr. Suzanne Brown. I'm a clinical psychologist and an emotional fitness consultant. So I currently have a private practice where I see people for uh, therapy one-to-one, and then I work with companies across business, sport and education um, to work on their emotional fitness. Great to be here. My name's Dean Leake. I'm a performance mindset coach, and um, a lot of my work is working with teams and companies, um, both in sport and in the corporate sector, just around how to Um, I guess build high performance teams really focused around how to build healthy performance environments Um, doing that alongside helping an array of people in different sectors um, you know with mindset coaching so that's me. Fantastic super excited to have you both on thank you very much Um, what a way to kick off season seven I have to say I'm a huge fan of you both on Twitter Um, you probably just get likes every day from me so um, I think some of the stuff you guys share and put out is, is incredibly thoughtful. And at the end, I'll, I'll get you to kind of share your handles and stuff so other people can um, can jump in on that. But um, yeah, Suze, do you want to kick us off? Where is it going to take us? What are you going to talk about? Yes. So I have brought along a poem today and it's by Khalil Gibran. And I came across this only a couple of months ago and it just immediately captured me and I've loved it ever since so I I ended up getting the book so he was an American Lebanese poet and philosopher and the thing I love about this is um, the book is called The Prophet and it, it was actually written in 1926 and I think it's still as relevant today as it probably was then so the poem is called On Children and it begins and a woman who held a babe against her bosom said speak to us of children. And he said, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. So that's the poem. And I did say at the start of this, just before we started recording, it does make me really emotional. Um, On a meta level, I guess, just to start with, I think there's something so beautiful about the impermanence that's captured in this poem about childhood and what it means to have children work with children and I think there's going to be a lot of parallels whether you're looking at it from the perspective of a parent or you're thinking about it as a coach 
but there's something about the transiency and for me, I'd recently come across this um, saying in Japanese, which was mono no aware. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, and it, it essentially is about the beauty of the impermanence. So as they've got, you know, blossom trees over there that they bloom, but they don't stay and blossom for very long. There's this kind of bittersweetness to it. And it can evoke, you know, really strong feelings in, in the transiency that it, it's kind of it's there but it's not going to last for long um which for me on a kind of meta level this poem really captures and then I guess a couple of things to pull out from the poem that I really personally love straight away I think the poem digs straight into we don't have ownership or possession of our children right they are their own beings and we are really the custodians and the guardians, but we don't own them. Um, and there's something really lovely about this, because I think ideally what we're all aiming to do right from childhood is separate and individuate and be our own people. Um, so I really like that idea that, you know, you, uh, particularly where it talks about how to nurture them. Right. So love is essential. You can love them but don't give them your thoughts, right? Your thoughts are your own thoughts, they will have theirs. And actually, how is it that we can guide them to embrace their own thoughts, be their own people, as opposed to just filling them up with our own thoughts? Um, I made a couple of other notes. Um, and so this encouragement to also live life in the now, right? Like you can't go backward. Uh, and then I think this can be really hard for a lot of people that we can want to live through our children. And uh, I think we see this a lot in sports. It's spoken about a hell of a lot in sports that, you know, maybe our previous disappointments or our unlived life might then find its way into our children's. And I think he's really encouraging to avoid that, that actually you can try to be like them because there's a lot of beauty in, in what children bring forth but don't try to make them be like you. Um, we need to accept what's been and gone and maybe our own disappointments and face reality about that. Um, and then this idea finally at the end, which is about us being the, um, the bow. And that for me, what I picked out from the poem is that you need flexibility and stability. So he talks about being both stable but also flexible enough to really allow that arrow to fly forth and then the child being the arrow there. And I think that's great advice again, across parenting and coaching that we don't wanna be rigid and we don't wanna be chaotic, but if we can be flexible and stable, I think ultimately that, that bodes well for the children that we're working with or our own children. So that's my little synopsis, but I'll hand over to you guys. So that's a beautiful poem please share that um because i'd love to delve into that a lot more and i've got so many questions like from that um i feel like we should make the whole pod about this poem though <laughs> 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 well, i was gonna bring this is amazing because i really resonate obviously having a little poppy in my life now who's um just turned seven months you definitely get into that um I guess like trap of thinking you know I want you know Poppy to grow up like this or you know a, a really live example is you know I wasn't like a massive reader when I was a child um and I'm um, you know that 
I guess that natural thought is, well, I want Poppy to be able to read like really effectively. So I, I really resonate with that. Um, I, I'm really interested as well when you talked about us not passing on thoughts. Um, and, you know, obviously we're, as, as adults, we're shaped by our experiences and our cultures and our parents. And are you suggesting that it's about like just opening up that space to encourage them to develop their own, their own beliefs and their experiences and rather than us trying to force things onto them? Yeah, I think, well, what I, what I take from it um, is that it's, yeah, not kind of imposing your belief system. And we know intergenerationally, as you talk about, we can pass a lot down, um, both unknowingly and knowingly. I think we can be sometimes conscious of it and sometimes really unaware of it. Um, so I think it's almost an explicit reminder, right, to not do that. And it's it's funny you talking about Poppy with reading, because the, the example that I really relate to is you can probably see behind me, we've got loads of books um, and along the lower shelves are all of Bo's books. And I remember watching him one day as he was stood there and he was literally like, hmm, like, what book do I want to go for? And And it was this really clear moment of me being able to say, like, he's his own person, like he's got his own desire right now. Um, so I, I often think sometimes it's about how do we, you know, I think we as parents can really worry about trying to prevent bad things from happening or, you know, like trauma or, um, and often I think at times it's, it's more about getting out of our, our own way and getting out of our kids' ways because they are naturally very capable beings that find their own way and deal with things and resolve things and we tend to interject or we tend to you know step in and um yeah so for me like it's those it's that ability to really straight from the off see them as they're their own person and um but it's hard right like I really relate to you about the but wanting the best for your kids and wanting to you know give them what maybe you didn't have or you know do it a particular way that was different to your parents like I, I definitely take that to my own therapy a hell of a lot so yeah is, is it bad as much as great as all your books were behind you I was far more interested in the Marvel characters on the mantelpiece and your, your Hulk and your Spider-Man and your Iron Man that was that was where I was drawn but um I, I'm, I'm fascinated and and for both of you as parents and I asked kind of parents this quite a lot like did you have a plan is that something you kind of sat down and worked out in your own head around how you would try and do things the same or differently or that conversation with yourself, you know, I won't be my mum and dad and I won't do this or I will do this and I want them. Like, did you go into it with any sort of idea or have those conversations or is it, and this does it a disservice, but is it quite a lot of make it up as you go along and just discover and learn? Because I guess unless you look after lots of other people's children quite regularly like you don't really get to practice it do you like your own is going to be quite different so fascinating to know how you approach that and actually the impact that may or may not have had yeah I mean I, I, I certainly having had our first child definitely feel like a massive sense of making it up and having no idea what I'm doing genuinely I remember going to the um NCT classes and um just like just in fear of going like this is just so much information and then almost forgetting it all and then like you're having this child in front of you and you're like what am I supposed to do with this <laughs> like and I guess you, you kind of learn on the job and that's okay isn't it because we all go you know many of us you know go through go through this experience and um you know we're, we're learning and I think it's you know certainly the thing that we talked a lot about was 
I guess it's a good question, not necessarily having a plan, but just more about how we communicate with each other as a, as a partnership um, and, you know, how we're aligned in, you know, what our beliefs are and um, what type of environment that we'd like to, you know, to raise our child in. Um, and it isn't always um, black and white and it isn't always the same, but I think it's just important to, to have that open conversation and that, that can be quite difficult. And, and I certainly noticed that in, in the relationship where, because um, we get consumed, whether it's about looking after the child or, you know, me being very busy with work, it's very easy to, to avoid those conversations. And I think it, it takes a lot of, I guess, courage to sort of stop and say, can, can we just find some space to have a chat about it? Yeah, what a beautiful question and, and a beautiful response, Dean. Like, I really agree with you there. Like, it takes... Um, just take courage to have those conversations I think because it you could I think it's one of the most vulnerable places you can be in right like when you both you're kind of figuring it out as you go um and I I would agree that um I definitely don't think you can you know there's no as much as you can read the books and there are a ton of books right like until your baby is in front of you you're relating to an image, right? You're relating to this imagined baby and that does not account for then the baby that you're going to have. So I think you, you, that's that flexibility piece for me. Like you can absolutely have a bit of an idea and a, a kind of, um, I'd, I'd, we definitely talked about, you know, kind of like key really important bits around discipline or um, how we, you know, how we see ourselves parenting. And again, I don't just say this as a clinical psychologist. I realize I'm very pro-therapy, but I can't, I can't tell you how much therapy has been a saving grace for me because there are times where, you know, I would really want us to be on the same page and I would have to then take that to therapy and appreciate my therapist saying, yeah, but, you know, there's something really important about having a different, you know, parent response. And actually, dad's going to do it this way and mum's going to and it's not right or wrong. It's just that's how mum and dad are going to deal with it and a bit different. Um, and I think the yeah, the repeating soundtrack to my um, experience at times can be, oh, I see I'm trying to do it a different way at times from um, the way things might have been done with me or. And what I'm doing is I'm going about it a different way, but I'm ending up at the same place. And so like, that's really annoying and frustrating and not what I want to be doing. But um, again, allowing a bit of grace for yourself and, and realizing that we are human. And I think the more we can allow ourselves to be alive and human with our kids, I don't think you can go too wrong, to be honest. I think it's when we get a bit, yeah, like measured and structured and rigid that, it doesn't feel quite real or natural. I, I think that's also the, maybe the possessive bit. And I remember having this conversation with my brother quite often around his two kids and, and they are brilliant, brilliant kids and I absolutely love them to pieces. And he, it would drive him mad because whenever they'd go to, to grandma's, so to our mum, you know, the, the rules would be, I mean, it's, it's a loose thing to say there's rules right like suddenly chocolate for breakfast is absolutely fine and staying in bed till 10 o'clock is absolutely fine and going to bed at 11 o'clock is absolutely fine and they're they're like you know five six seven and they're just doing what they want and coming from I mean dad was a policeman mum was a nurse so they were quite on it not authoritarian but we we knew where the line was and there were there were rules and that was how it worked and 
but just that variance of experience. I was like, mate, I know it drives you insane, but it's not a bad thing for them. Like to, to be able to understand and appreciate what they get at grandma's because at home they don't get that. So it makes it more special that, oh my God, we're going to grandma's. Like I can have, bre- I can have chocolate for breakfast tomorrow. Like there would be a real excitement around that. And, and as you say, if I guess if everyone did it the same, it, it just wouldn't be the experience because they're not they're not getting that breadth and depth of the variety of life which is kind of what makes it so so important and and so wonderful in that sense so i yeah i mean it i can fully understand why it drives him mad but i'm also like come on mate you just need to see see the bigger picture of this like it's not going to damage them as people like they're not going to suddenly go home and go no 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 i i you know i have to have chocolate for breakfast every morning and so he came up with you know grandma's house grandma's rules but they don't apply everywhere. So it was a really nice balance. And I thought it was a great solution to you can go to certain places and people have their own rules. But when you're at home with me, this is what we do. And there was just this kind of actually, that's a really, really good solution. So there's not really a question in there, but I just, I just wanted to share that example because I guess it's probably quite similar for a lot of people. Lovely. And I think it is that, isn't it? Right. We have different relationships with different people and it helps us to navigate actually how do I relate to that person or um yeah actually uh, with mum and dad things are different and I can get away with certain things that I couldn't there and it's the same with nursery I think you know when um that transitional phase of going to nursery can be really difficult for a lot of people um and I remember really trying to embrace this idea of that's his own time away from all of like that's where he gets to have his own life that I know nothing about and his dad knows nothing about and it's his um and you'll see like he'll come out and I'll say how was nursery and I'll get nothing back because essentially he's again going back to the poem teaching me I'm in the now right nursery was like 10 minutes ago that's finished what are we doing now now we're going to be a dinosaur now we're going to whatever it might be um but it's just these like constant little lessons that I think I definitely feel like I'm constantly learning um, as a parent, as a human, and I'm very grateful for him for all the different things that he showed me. And I, you may have seen recently, I, I posted about um, about the kind of like sibling rivalry aspect of trying to prevent, you know, these really mixed feelings that he's definitely experiencing. Um, and again, it's just more lessons for me to learn, like actually this is at home where he deals with all of that and that's where he gets to you know again work that through because we have to deal with those things in the real world right we have to deal with jealousy and competition and sports again is a great example of this right like you're going to face competition you're going to face being disappointed or feeling let down if you've lost or if you've let the team down and and actually a lot of this happens already at home if you can allow it and if you can give it space to to kind of bubble up and work its way out. I really resonate with that. And I think back to the sort of broader point you're making around the poem and, you know, your children developing their own voice, it's, it's teaching them that, you know, we have to appreciate that everyone has a very different perspective in life. So when we're looking at our values, it's important to really reach in and look at what our values are and what our strengths are, but also appreciate, you know, through empathy. And that's, the story was great. Um, you mentioned there, Phil, around just the ability to empathize. And um, it's, it's amazing. I've, I've done a session the other day with um, a law firm and how there's still quite a, well, I, 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 I don't know whether there's a right or wrong here, but a, a quite a strong belief that empathy is something that you inherit. Um, 
and actually was looking at it in the context of it being a skill that we can all develop um, and, you know, something that we can all strengthen um, on, on many levels. So, yeah, I really, really love that story. I'm interesting. I, I, I love empathy. It always sits in my, on my kind of individual development plan. It sits in the middle because sometimes I feel like I'm really empathetic. I'm like, I've nailed this. Like, I really care. I've got it. I'm invested in everybody. And then other times I'm like, no, this I'm so far away from where I would like to be in terms of empathy. Like how, how do you, would you guys go about working with people to, to develop that as a skill? Do you want me to go or do you want? You, you go, Susan. Um... We're doing the polite waiting out, aren't we, Dean? We're like, oh, is he? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I see empathy as like three kind of stages um, in terms of um, both, you know, kind of being able to label what the person is feeling stepping into the shoes of that and feeling it yourself so if you can label it but you don't feel it that's sympathy it's not empathy um, and then the third stage for me is often there's some kind of empathic action or motivation like it all of our feelings essentially are about giving energy to something right like it drives you to do something and most commonly when I, I hear about people either avoiding empathy particularly in the workplace it's because they often think that they're going to have to take on the feelings of the other person and then solve or fix it. I don't know if you find this, Dean, but I feel like it's it's really common. And when people are already feeling overwhelmed with their own stuff and their own life that's going on, they just have less capacity. We, we have less capacity to be able to contain other people's. So I think often it's at times just letting people know, actually, an empathic action can be listening. Right? You don't have to take on or fix or solve. And most commonly people don't want you to fix or solve. I, I genuinely come from the belief that we have the answers inside of ourselves and it's about allowing us to be able to reach that, um, that, that inner wisdom that we have. Because you know, I'll often say people don't necessarily always come to me because they don't know what to do in therapy. They come because they know what to do and they're not doing it. Right. They want to know why, you know, why is it that I know this is the solution and yet I'm doing the exact opposite thing. So um, I guess just clarifying, first of all, what it is, you know, that actually you can, you know, really. And again, though, I think that requires us to be vulnerable. Right. Like if I have to get in touch with the fact that you are grieving, I have to know my own grief and I have to have been comfortable enough with that and. I have to have been able to embrace that enough that it doesn't make me want to shut down or pull away or or if you're angry I have to be comfortable with my own anger and if you think about working with children I don't know whether when you were making a comment there Phil about you know you being empathic and at other times you're not I also think we we need to show people like our real emotions and that doesn't mean flying off the handle but there's something really important particularly when you are working with kids especially for them to see you know how you feel like like there's nothing worse than being like everything's okay through gritted teeth like they can see they're perceptive and as adults we know it right we know if somebody is saying one thing and they feel another you are perceptive so you know, I also find that kids will will really want to see that they have an impact. So if you are always understanding, I remember this lovely story that I heard where the mum was like trying to be really empathic and really, you know, like, oh, and I understand that you might feel, you know, angry and, and the little girl just screamed at her, 
don't understand, right? I don't want you to understand because that is not what I need right now. I need to rail against you. And I can't do that unless you're angry too, right? Like I need to be able to know that you can take my anger or you can take my grief or whatever it is. So I think us being comfortable with our own feelings is really essential to that piece there of empathy. Yeah, that example as well, The um, when I was in the session the other day, the, the guy described himself as not being empathetic because he couldn't feel what the other person was feeling. Um, and I think you make a really good point there that that's, um, you know, empathy is more about, you know, taking the position of really understanding. I remember a time I had a real fortunate lunch with a guy called David Hopley. I don't know if you've ever come across David, um, Sue. Um, he um, is the former head of the Special Forces. Um, and when I met him in London at the um, Special Forces HQ, so it's a really humbling experience. You, you've got, it's got the, the history of the legacy is amazing. And you have this perception of what you might think of somebody in the Special Forces. So straight away, you go and like at Middleton um, on SES Who Dares Wins and, and sit, sit down. And, um, you know, he, he's about six foot three and... Um, he said something that's always stuck with me and um, it was eight words and it was all about how to lead effectively and he said it's all about how you make people feel um, and of course it rings really true and what made it really start for me was just how he was with me um, and just his ability to like be really engaged in how he was asking like really genuine questions like taking his time to, to really get to know me like his ability to um, seems like a small thing but just the power of being able to like lock in with eye contact you know just showed that he was genuinely listening um, playing back what I was saying again just confirming that he was listening to what I was saying um, you know being present in the moment all, all of these things you know I sort of talk about in the context of like like almost like tactical empathy like how can you sort of like develop some of these skills um, so that you can show up and, and and build that bond and create that sense of connection and belonging amongst you both um and another example as we spoke about just offline before we came on um was very fortunate to go to thailand recently and um on the way out we um were very fortunate to have the base net to put um our little poppy in and she slept all the way through um which is great for her and great for us on the way back she was just flipped over to six months um and the policy said that she couldn't have the, the bassinet. So the first cabin crew came over and said, I'm really sorry, but the policy says you can't have the baby. Um, I'm like, probably unhelpfully at times, just a bit relaxed. And I'm like, oh, don't worry about it, it's fine. Whereas my partner's like, no, this is like not right. This is not what the email says and challenged it. So this person's very much like, I've got a child. Um, I, I understand, I'm really sorry, but this is the policy. But it just left us feeling like, our expectations weren't being met or at least being heard. And then the second cabin crew came over about 10 minutes later and she said to us, um, can you just explain the situation? So we explained. And just by her approach of really listening um, and saying that she really understands like how we feel. And she just kept saying, I really understand. She sat on our level as well. So she met us where we're at. And it just showed me the stark difference between somebody who approaches something with sympathy, which is a very normal thing to do. It's part of kind of what we've learned. Um, it's not uh, wrong, but it's something that we can maybe look at as opposed to empathy. And we came away from that literal five minute discussion thinking she was wonderful. We were like, she's amazing. Like she's like made us feel so much better. And it just showed you the differences in approach perhaps. Yeah, 
Yeah. The, out of interest, so the outcome didn't change, right? Like you still weren't allowed to use the yeah, no. back net. Yeah. But how different you've been left feeling based on the fact that she took the time and she empathized. Yeah. And it wasn't like, I feel really sorry or like I've got my own kids or, um, you know, here's the facts. It was just like a warmth of, I really understand how you feel. Yeah. Like, and it, was, it was just simply just saying that a couple of times. We were like, yeah, she gets it. It's fine. Yeah. Move on. Well, even watching you talk about, you know, the guy um, from the SAS and like the what was striking me was the impact that it's it's left you with and that ripple effect of what it actually means to really be seen. Right. Like he really saw you. He really attended to you. And again, the same with this woman, like the outcome couldn't like be changed for policy or whatever, you know, annoyingly that is. But actually about really being seen and and allowing you to be heard too it sounds like you know she she did hear what you had to say and it's a great point because I reflect back and go who are the leaders that I remember that really had an impact on me and when I say leaders I don't mean necessarily you know your performance directors or program managers but like just just people um, that have a big influence in your life and it, it always goes back to how they made you feel and how they made you feel heard so I really yeah. I get that and um, I think it's it's just important that we show up for people and show a genuine care and, and actually how you how you cultivate an environment um, you know where we you know we're really there for people and you know if we build that basis of belonging then you can build on that. Yeah and how sad in a way it is that it's so um, it so stands out and it feels novelty because it doesn't happen very often right like we're so caught up in our own dramas our own world our own you know busyness that I think it really does stand out but perhaps it, it shouldn't be so novel like this is really maybe what we're, we're speaking to here that actually if we could really listen if we could really be present and and with somebody in whatever they're in without fixing it without changing the outcome that actually that is often what people want and then they, they feel alongside with like you and I guess that goes back to what we were talking about. You don't have to have the solutions for somebody. You can just be alongside with them whilst they figure it out. And that, that is so hard though. Like you were talking about the chap that um, struggled to connect to the feelings that maybe he was seeing in somebody else. And I think that comes back then to how, how able we are to be open to those feelings ourselves. Like if we've not had good experiences with maybe it is endings and loss or you know we we just want to pack that away we want to move away from it we want to end the conversation really quickly rather than being able to be there with somebody in that yeah it's also what's really playing out for me is um I guess it kind of links to the, the imposter syndrome piece but it's, it's really natural isn't it to want to fix so you know if you're struggling with like self-doubt or feelings of inferiority or feeling like you're not good enough it's so natural when you're hearing somebody to to try and get across you know the, the fact that you need to get it right or you want to impress and um that's a really natural thing to do and I think that we're not saying here that that's bad it's just actually a, a very normal human um behavior and actually it's just looking at how you might be able to just a simple switch and maybe how you change the question or, or how you show up just by listening or being present can really alter the sort of experience in that relationship yeah, like can you sit in that uncomfortable space yes. of not fixing and holding the tension 
because I think it is a tension, right? Like, especially it's our ability to tolerate how uncomfortable that feels. Um, and it, I think it, it's really common in parenting, you know, like seeing your child in distress, you want to, like, nobody wants to see their kid distressed, right? Like, um, but how much of it can you tolerate within reason? Obviously, if there's some like safety element, you're going to step in, but within reason to allow them to see that they can survive it that actually they're not going to be destroyed by whatever's happening or you know that they can overcome that I, I really think that that's really true and in, instead I think what we do is we do jump to solution too quickly mm. and I'm guilty of this almost <laughs> like I have to constantly remind myself like let him figure it out or you know at, like you say ask the questions where you know what could you do here um because yeah I guess it's that we're really quick to want to just solve it do you think seeking to understand is the solution there in terms of not wanting or not becoming a fixer but also avoiding that like so if usually choose the example my empathy is only going to ever come from either my imagination or my experience this this would be my understanding of it because i can't i can't be you either of you i can't have your experiences or your perceptions or your feelings or any of this so actually as much as you can say I, I'm really upset or I'm grieving or whatever, I can only resonate in two ways, as I see it. As I say, either what I can imagine you must feel like from what you've told me and from what I know or from what I've done myself. So how how do we overcome that? Because I feel like that's the problem with empathy. It's when people say, oh, you know, see it from their shoes or stand in their shoes or walk a mile in their shoes. You're kind of like, but I can't. That's me imagining me doing that, which is nowhere close to being the same as being that person experiencing what they're experiencing. So is, is just seeking to understand and trying not get to the bottom of it, because again, that would, that would suggest there is a solution, but just question, 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 give me more, share more, tell me how you feel more, just kind of in a, I guess, yeah, non non-judgmental non-end point I don't even know what the word would be for that but you're not you're not trying to seek to get to an end point you are just understanding for the sake of understanding yeah I, I somebody mentioned recently described it really nicely and quite simply was that it, you know empathy isn't about you it's about the other person um so trying to move away from I'm trying to get something out of this or trying to create an end point it's literally being able to as you say so it's like sit in that space of just being comfortable with like hearing this person and and trying to create that that real safety um you know whether it's acknowledging the, the pain and suffering they're experiencing you know may, maybe saying things like you know i can i can see how that might make you feel or that sounds like it's a really difficult time um you, you mentioned earlier as well Suze, around like vulnerability i think that's really important as part of empathy you know just actually sometimes people find it difficult to to um know what to say and actually by saying that that can be quite valuable in itself that i just really don't know what to say right now or um you know that that, that showing vulnerability again just shows that you're you're listening and you're being there for them because you're not making it about you it's about about the other person yeah i think that's a great point like whose need is it satisfying uh, at times right like and and this is something that we have to um i know certainly from my perspective as a therapist but I imagine again with coaching right it's going to be the same there's a parallel here like why are you in the work in the first place and whose needs are you there to satisfy and of course you're going to have needs that will be satisfied through doing the work like I, I 
I'm very fortunate that I don't see it as work I see it as a vocation like I love what I do and I could not imagine doing anything different and I know a lot of coaches say the same but then we do have to have an honest look at ourselves about um, a lot of therapists for example get into this profession because they've had experiences of probably being a therapist in their family system in not a healthy way and so it can come about from this need to kind of rescue or save or, um, again, unconsciously try and repair something that happened very early on. And I think it's always great to then as a, as a coach be asking yourselves, you know, like, what, what is it that draws you to this work? And as you were there saying, Dean, you know, like, if you're not there to then, because we both have needs, I don't think it's about denying, you know, because any relationship, if it's an honest relationship, both has needs I think it can be quite unhealthy if you're always sacrificing your need you know like you're always putting the other person first because again that's not a real relationship and at times I think we can do that to avoid a reaction like if I can't meet this person's need they're going to be disappointed they're going to be angry so I'll bend and stretch and break myself to try to meet it again is not real life it's like how can the relationship tolerate um the pain the frustration the like can we do it together and can we come out stronger on the other side um but I, I guess what you were connecting into there both of you was the curiosity piece right can I be curious enough about this other person's experience and a little bit Phil you know when you were saying like there's this imagined what that would feel like and then there's your experience your lived experience I think there's there's kind of the reality to that. There's the thing that happens in the outside world and then the sense we make of it on the inside. And so often I don't need to have been through the exact same experience as somebody because even if I had, my response might be different. Um, but I do know what my feelings of pain feel like or my grief or my anger or my shame. And I have access to all of that. So can I sit with somebody and often just help them not be alone with that? Because I think that's, I, I find for me, that's the key piece. It's often something's happened in the external world and then it's the sense we've made of that in the internal world. And often it's when we've been alone, we've not had anybody there to help make sense of it, to help talk it through. That's where you tend to see it has repercussions. So, um, and then just to say, and Dean, you might speak more to this, but it, it is something like a, a muscle that can be worked, right? Which is why things like meditation, mindfulness, um, you know, we see you put people into brain scanners, they actually are strengthening that piece of their mind. So it, it, it absolutely is a muscle that can be strengthened. You can do, you know, workouts to strengthen it. It's not something that is fixed, but it will obviously be impacted by your earlier experiences. Yeah, I, I just totally agree with that. It's, it's, it's really is a skill that you can, and it's really tangible. The stuff that we talked about today is stuff that you can take to the next conversation and go, actually, I'm going to really focus on this one thing and I'm just going to practice it and see how I get on. And I might not get it right and it may go terribly wrong, but I'm going to give it a go. And that's that's great because we're going to grow from that. Um, the the curiosity, curiosity thing as well um, really um, reminded me of like a great, piece of advice that I got um, from a coaching context when talking about empathy so of course like curiosity is really important but also um, sometimes there's a real nuance in the difference between using um, the sort of why over the how and the what 
So in the context, Phil, this goes back to sort of the illusion of control. Obviously, we're trying to create a sense of safety in people. And um, actually, you know, sometimes when we ask why, it can be quite threatening. So particularly if we're, I don't know, in a negotiation or we're speaking to a manager and maybe we're trying to figure out um, a project that went wrong or um, a relationship had broken down, it's quite natural to want to understand why it's broken down. Um, but actually, it's quite threatening, isn't it? You know, if somebody's asking you, why did that happen? Um, it puts you in quite a defensive mode, potentially. But actually using maybe just a slightly different use of language around like, you know, you know, what led you to make that decision or how did that come about? It kind of depersonalizes a little bit and actually makes it more about the we or the actual context of the situation. So I think curiosity is really important, but perhaps sort of trial and error around the language you might use could be could be helpful. You are listening to a Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. If you want to find out more about this podcast and all the other great benefits you can get from being a member of Rugby Coach Weekly, why not visit rugbycoachweekly.net to find out more. That's rugbycoachweekly.net to find out more about how to become a member and receive a load of free stuff. Now, back to the podcast. How important do you guys think contracting is within that kind of conversation? And sometimes there'll, there'll be really organic conversations, aren't they? So you probably just fall into something and maybe you don't have that chance to say, what are you what are you looking for from me from this conversation or just just that initial kind of are you are you like are you telling me this because you want me to help find a solution with you or do you just want me to listen like is is that stuff you guys would embed into the conversations you have as and when you get a chance so there is almost a a very brief agreement of this is clearly really important to you I just want to double check why you've not not in a dismissive way i just want to check what you're really looking for from me here and maybe you don't know which is fine but maybe you just want to rant like and i'm just going to listen or if you're coming saying i know you've solved this before like how did you do it or clearly you do want me to suggest some solutions to you so is that something you guys would use personally from a therapy perspective um i would not be encouraging venting or ranting like that is not what people like that's a defense to me like if you're coming just to have a rant it's very unlikely things will change and often rants tend to be quite external like if this person changed then my life would be fine or if so and so system was better then um so like it, within therapy obviously there is an actual contract so you know I send a contract and I, I speak it through on our first session my first session with people is normally two to three hours so it's an extended intensive session where we'll talk about and, and make explicit you know the kind of uh, those pieces right the contract like what type of therapist am I because there's hundreds of different types of therapies and I am an active therapist. So I'm, you know, I'm going to interject. If I see you, I, I always say this, you know, I'm not neutral. I'm on the side of your health. And so I'm not going to sit passively by if I see you engaging in a defense that's going to hurt you or harm you, I'll be drawing that to your attention. And, and like Dean said, there's ways that you can do that without being, I think, obnoxious or threatening or abusive. Um, but I'm certainly not, you know, I, I take a very clear stand in terms of, I am here against your suffering, unnecessary suffering, and I'm here for your health. So, um, 
but it's going to depend on that. Last question on that, Suze. Just um, just 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 out of real interest, because I think this is a real um, like paradox and perhaps conflict in coaching as well. So, um, to your point there around, I'm there to look after your health, and clearly you'll come from a perspective of having a model that you might be working by, or or maybe multiple approaches. Um, how, how do you balance the um, kind of I guess like because within therapy, I'm guessing there's, there's elements of coaching. So you're sort of like guiding your, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, open to be challenged, but you're sort of like trying to, a bit like the poem, you're trying to help that person develop a sense of who they might be and process what's going on. How, how do you balance that with, this is what I think could be best for you, as opposed to being a bit more, um, let's see where this might go, if that makes any sense. No, it does. I think it's a bit like, so I can only answer it from my perspective. Obviously, different therapists would answer it differently. I'm I'm definitely not a therapist that advocates giving advice or like that's not my place to do that. Um, so when it comes to what are we both joined up here to agree on, we would call this the alliance. And you really want to be establishing that in your first session, which is let's see if we can get an agreement on what the problem is. Like, why are you coming now, right? Like you've had problems for 10 years, something's happened now to make you seek out help. So what's your understanding of the problem? And then can I join you in understanding that? This is the way that then I work. So I, I work in an emotion focused way. So I'm kind of, it, every response they are giving to me informs my next intervention, right? Like. And I always say that to people, you can't give me a wrong response here because everything you do tells me what I need to do next. And by that, I mean, if I ask somebody how they're feeling and they respond by getting anxious, then that tells me I need to help regulate their anxiety. If I ask about a feeling and they give me a defense, then I need to draw attention to a defense that they're using because the defenses are often outside of our awareness. So we don't know that we're using them. And that, that kind of then is my role to help draw attention to. If I ask somebody about feeling and they give me a feeling, then we explore that feeling and we try to deepen that and, and gain more access to that. So I'm never, I genuinely, Dean, don't know where a session's gonna go. You're right, I do have a model and I've, I've been trained in a particular model. And I was reading a little bit about this this morning, actually, about when it comes to creativity, it's so important that you've got a structure that you know really well so that you know when you can deviate from it, right? Yeah. Like you need to have embedded that, you need to have a real solid understanding of a process or a structure to know when you can then, right, I'm gonna go off track here because I think this is going to be more important. Um, but I don't rigidly apply a model because we're humans. And so I don't know where a session is gonna go. And when you're working with somebody and you're working in that kind of more unconscious place, they don't know where it's gonna go. Right? like it's it's the specific ingredients of the session that lead to what we would call an unlocking and often then that's where people have memories come back or um they might use uh, like as you would in sports kind of imaginal um way like techniques to access some of these deeper feelings but i don't know what's going to be brought forward and so i am often just as you know kind of taking it all in alongside them and then trying to make sense of it. And again, it's often about me getting out of the way, right? Like there are times where I've watched back sessions and thought, oh God, I've gotten in the way there. And actually, I, if I'd have just stepped back and allowed them to do the, the work there, they're often, you know, 
teaching me. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it's, great. It's, it's, a, it's a really great conversation to be had. And, and I, I certainly don't have it enough myself. And, and, and I'm not sure whether I see it enough in the industry. But, you know, just in terms of like the boundaries piece, in terms of like the, the differences and similarities between therapy and coaching. Um, and it's something that I grapple with because I've got a very natural kind of affiliation and passion and curiosity around psychology like you know deep sort of sort of almost like obsession about just finding out cool things and you know so I I would take more of a future looking approach and very much kind of love the work around emotional flexibility um but naturally as a coach you're you know very much question based so it's always that conflict of like where does that fit in with my um coaching skills um knowing that I also have my own set of beliefs um, and model that I ascribed to um but actually not using that as a framework where I'm telling people what to do, like actually more the opposite, but actually where, where do you find that space to um, like help people to, um, I guess, develop the principles that intuitively throughout your life, you've, you've seen that's worked in, in, in multiple environments, you know, the sort of psychology of courage and sitting with discomfort and, um, you know, taking, as we spoke about empathy, you know, taking, taking actionable steps. So again, I, I certainly don't have any answers. I'm just kind of, I'm kind of forever sort of exploring it and getting curious about it. I often say though there is a real link there between what I'll talk to coaches about about um, not shutting off from their own reactions to things. So like mm. I think at times again where you know we were saying you know you both have needs and you are going to have a reaction to the person in front of you if you're coaching them or um, as a therapist if I'm in therapy I'm having a reaction because I am human, you know, I am, you know, I'm constantly changing in the session. I'm, you know, our ability, I think, to monitor that and then use it as information, right? That's the bit I think people can shut down to it by thinking like, oh, I shouldn't be having this judgment or I shouldn't be, but you're missing vital information if you do that. Because often if you're having it, this might be, this might be about you, right? First off, yeah, we have to acknowledge this might be about something within you that you then need to take to your own coach or your own therapist, whatever. But it might also be about what happens in their relationships, right? Like if you're having a particular reaction, and so I'll get curious, like, does this happen with me or this happens with what every female in your life or actually every person who you might consider an authority position? If we go back to coaching again, you think about coaches really do occupy that authority role. And people have had really mixed experiences about authority figures, starting right from parents um, or teachers or, you know, the like. Then you start to build a pattern with them. But I think if we if we just uh, kind of keep ourselves really measured or, you know, deny that part of our experience, our kind of counter reaction, you miss out on really important information to use. But it's discerning. It, I think that's the key. It's the discernment. Is this my stuff? that's getting triggered and activated that I need to go and look at? Or is this about what's coming up in between us and in our relationship? It goes back to the importance of awareness, doesn't it? Being, yeah. being able to notice when that's happening and that's a, a skill as well in itself. Hugely, and you can work on that. But I also say to people, there are times that I've come out of a session and been like, oh, what just happened there? And, you know, like as much as you could think like, oh, it would be great to have caught it in the moment. There's nothing wrong. And I will say this again, to you, there's nothing wrong with, you know, the next time you see somebody checking in and going, 
you know, it's been on my mind that I reacted like this. And can we look at that? Or, you know, at times I've gone back to patients and said, hey, I'm sorry, I got that wrong last week. And I don't think we were on the right page. I was re relating to you as though you were you from two weeks ago and I wasn't seeing you in front of me now. Like there's nothing wrong with us being able to go back and, and have that conversation. It celebrates the one of the imperfections of being a human, but also I imagine it probably strengthens the relationship, the fact that you can come forward and say, look, I'm really sorry, but you know, I might have misjudged the situation, as you said. So. Yeah, like for some people, they've never had an apology. Right? Like, to, like parents have never apologized to them or, um, you know, in the workplace, it's not really often that you probably get an apology is it like I guess and so it can be really therapeutic but it's coming from that genuine place of you're right like I'm not perfect and I don't think we should be putting ourselves on a pedestal of of saying we are because I think again you set yourself up for a big fall if you do what a brilliant conversation I'm really hesitant to interject and kind of say we we probably want to just like pause that and and move on to Dean stuff because yeah. we could just keep going but there's there's absolutely tons in there um I've loved just listening to you guys discuss that so thank you um so Dean we'll jump over to you um fire away cool so I um like Susan's got a poem and it is a poem by Donna Ashworth who I came across really recently and really like some of her stuff and it's going to talk a little bit about imposter syndrome um, as a fellow imposter myself um, so the uh, poem if I can just get it up goes like this so you're probably sitting there with all the symptoms of imposter syndrome and you don't even know it that feeling of not being good enough when you're invited out of your comfort zone the anxiety in your stomach when you put yourself out there waiting for somebody to reveal you as a fraud the compliments you ignore because they don't really know me. And if they did, they wouldn't think that. Then the waiting for someone to realize you're actually a mess and not put together as they think. Yes, my friends, you're probably sitting there with all the symptoms of imposter syndrome and you don't even know it. Well, let, you, let me tell you this. Most people give compliments because that's exactly what they see and they feel. It's not normal for people to throw accolades around unreservedly. And the reason people think you are great is because you really are great. So the next time you hide inside your shelf of fear for being found out, remember this, that's your anxiety talking, it's not real. So I kind of like that because I think it was just sort of the, the, the level of sort of complexity on many levels in terms of um, and, and questions that emerge in terms of, you know, what is imposter syndrome? Where does it come from? Why do we experience it? What can we do about it? How do we, how do we see it? And I guess like my real passion for, you know, the subject of imposter syndrome is because, you know, it really it lives within my story in terms of, you know, throughout my whole life, just feeling like a, you know, a real imposter. Um, and I guess it'd probably be quite cool just to, if, if helpful um, for, for people who are listening, because I think there's um, sort of diff definitions out there. Um, but for imposter syndrome, for those that don't know it, it's uh, feelings of, um like real overwhelming feelings of feeling inadequate, um, despite success, feeling like you're not good enough, that you feel like you're a bit of a fraud, um, feeling like that you're a fake, that you don't deserve success, often accomplishing any success or progress in your life down to luck. Um, so it's that kind of um, constant stream of storytelling that, that emerges. Um, it could be things like 
um, I need to work harder to prove my worth or I feel like I don't belong here or um, I don't feel perfect. I'm, I'm going to fail. I've always been really lucky. Anything that feels like there's this overwhelming sense that you're just not good enough and that you've faked where you've got to in your life. Um, and for me personally, um, it's something that really played out for me um, throughout my childhood. I came from a um, a very sort of working class background. My mum's a hairdresser. My dad was in, um, a soldier in the army and lovely people like was in the most warm environment um dad was um sort of as you'd expect with military very perfectionist everything had to be right the whole time but it was often like don't do this don't do that um but just get it right and my mum was all about you know be nice to everybody respect your elders um which kind of I guess like create an environment. I'm not quite sure where the anxiety come from. Perhaps it was through this environment and certainly really explored it through therapy, but a sense of just um, never feeling like I was good enough, that I was never smart enough and really struggled, um, you know, academically. So I felt like I was always distracted because I just cared so much about what other people were thinking. There was a real natural tendency to always compare my, myself to other people. Um, and, you know, this kind of drip fed, you know in, throughout my whole life really um and it wasn't until you know I guess a couple of moments in my life where you know, have those like um I'm not going to go into it now for another time but moments where you're like wow like I've really just developed some awareness around the fact that I need to develop a better relationship with how I am experiencing my own feelings and thoughts um and the stories that have played out and why I've gone on to to do for certain things you know just little things like teachers um you know saying to you um you know dean you're not good enough to go to university and then that becomes a character that you live out which is i'm not good enough um but then naturally what you then do is go well fuck it i'm going to prove that person wrong and then you go on to try and do the things that the other person wanted said you couldn't do and then you actually start to search for that so for me it was all about you know i wanted to be a senior leader in sport and that's the track that I went down. And I had this view that I wanted to be a PD. Um, and then it got to this moment of realization where I was like, I'm only doing this to impress people from my childhood who told me that I couldn't do it. And actually it's not even my strength. What am I doing here? Like, you know, I'm searching for something that one, I don't enjoy, not particularly good at. What is it that I'm really passionate about? Um, and yeah, I, I guess kind of like really just setting the scene around you know, actually when you develop an awareness and maybe change the way that you um, could look at imposter syndrome and a, a lot of us would look at it in a really negative way. You know, we see that self-doubt and we see that feelings of um, not being good enough as something that's really terrible. You know, this narrative, you know, going back to the control thing that we need to get rid of it, stop it, control it. And that's why I quite like the, the emotional flexibility, which is more around how do we work with it? How do we how do we use it? Um, there was some really interesting research that came out of um, MITS in the US. I don't know if you've seen this, which was around how they were were able to demonstrate actually how people that experience feelings of imposter syndrome actually came out um, shining with more emotional intelligence and competency. And they did some um, interviews. I think they interviewed about six thousand people. And they were able to create conditions where there was one group that um, were very confident and the other group who had huge feelings of self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And the interview panel overwhelmingly said that those who had feelings of imposter syndrome were more curious, were more empathetic, 
ask better questions, were more present in the moment, listened more effectively. But not just that, they actually gave more competence in their answers. So um, I guess like the, the, the message is one, if you're experiencing that, like one, it's really normal. Um, but two, you know, actually be careful what you wish for, because um, if we attempt to try and get rid of it, often that can manifest in more feelings of self-doubt and imposter syndrome. But actually, if we we start to embrace it and, and actually see it as something that can be harnessed into a strength and accept that it's part of who you are. And, and, and that can be one really authentic and hugely powerful for, for being you, then, you know, we can we can create some cool things. So, yeah, that was um. That was a big waffle, but just set the context of kind of something that I'm passionate about, but also it's kind of steeped in my story as well. I love that. I thank you for your honesty. I, th I think that's a really fascinating insight into, as you say, just how how challenging it can be, but the the, the positives, but also the I guess the the nature of it is, it's probably far more common than we tend to think. And and I mean, this is this is without getting too deep straight away. I guess this is the the fascinating piece for me is our own our own lack of awareness of everyone else because we'll probably just cling to the, this type of stuff and you know maybe we don't share it too often but actually by just keeping it to ourselves we probably then don't come to recognize how everyone else comes from these things and and you, you know you, there's some good examples of clips online or whatever it might be when people do share this stuff quite widely to a big audience everyone goes oh my god it's so it's so refreshing to hear people talk about this and I guess it, the kind of the mental health piece about normalizing those kinds of conversations because for whatever reason that's not happened for for a long time so I, I, I do think there's a just making this a more regular thing around how we talk about the stuff that challenges us and the way we feel is is really powerful so um, I, I wonder yeah again without getting too deep like the role of identity within imposter syndrome because i mean i find identity fascinating as a concept do you, from your both your experiences either as, as individuals or working with people do you find that it, it tends to be a challenge for those people that suffer with imposter syndrome around establishing what their identity is or because they have a so it's either kind of i don't know what my identity is or i'm really clear on what my identity is and I'm being stretched slightly. Do, do you think it's at opposite ends of the spectrum as to where this sits, or do you just think it's something that that everybody encounters in some form or another? Wow! <laughs> Little question to start you off. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, it's sort of stepping out of like you know, coach, and just kind of sharing my my personal experiences. Um, I identified for so long me as being the thoughts that I was experiencing and that then became my character so you know starting off with the you know I, I feel stupid I don't feel like I'm good enough became I am stupid I'm not good enough and that became the character that I became and and therefore those thoughts and those feelings manifest in behavior like avoidance or drinking too much alcohol whatever it might be um and it wasn't until I really learned the, the skill of, again, going back to the point of normalizing, but also just being able to create that distance um, and be able to maybe see my thoughts in a, in a different way and that they don't have to dictate who I am and what I do. Um, you know, more being aware. It's like that post that you shared, um, that, that lovely picture where we're sort of trying to, trying to create a relationship where we're more the awareness of it rather than, you know, being dictated by it. But I'm sure, Suze, you've got some 
great views on this as well. I just wanted to circle back to first of all say thank you for your honesty and um, I'm sure if if the listeners are anything like how I was responding it was just such a um, beautiful um, share there so thank you Dean. Um, it was I'm glad you started off with it because I, I have been curious about when you said you know like why you're passionate about um, because obviously this is something that you you lead on and you you talk you know a lot about and um, I think it's always really lovely to hear, as you say, you know, like the, the story that connects behind it, because there's the there's the theory and there's the knowing, but then there's the actually what it's like to have lived that. And I just I really can like feel that and just yeah appreciate you and, and your share. Um, I, I guess I was struck by when you said that moment for you, the realization that I'm doing this to to appease and please people from my childhood who maybe are many years behind you and not in your social group anymore but the this idea where it I guess connects to identity which might be about um you know like I was saying sometimes I find that I do something to try and do the opposite to maybe what my parents did and I end up kind of circling back around and I'm in the same point anyway but I think it speaks to that like if you've defined, if we define ourselves in relation to someone or something, we are still always defining ourselves by them or by that thing, as opposed to really connecting to that inner sense of who you are, right? Like that moment, it just felt like this relinquishing piece for you to be able to say, I'm, I'm letting that part go. And in doing so, I, I also heard, obviously, like, I've got to do a lot of work on this relationship I have with me, right? Like this inner critic, this inner part that I think we all have personally. I think it develops very early on. Um, and a lot of the time, a lot of the work is in doing that, that internal work between me and me, right? Because it's, it's how much do I give other people the power over me because I've not done that work? Or, you know, like that people then can define or I don't have a sense of my shape or identity, Phil, to go back to your question. You know, I've definitely worked with people who, who will say, I don't even know what to order at breakfast or, I, you know, like they, they've outsourced so much of, you know, who they are to try to please other people or to try not to. Um, like I'm thinking of other examples, like, you know, people that might struggle to even know what to wear, you know, like they go shopping and they have no sense of who they are, what they like, or um, because they've spent so long outsourcing it and checking in with other people. And is that going to please the other person? Am I going to upset the other person if I have a separate mind to them? I think is what it comes down to, right? Like, can I have my own mind? Can I be my own person? And you don't have to like that but can I can can we still then you know have a relationship together or you know can I be a separate parent to how my parents were and we can still maintain a relationship so I, I guess that's where I go with identity on that there's a um a, a, a guy that I come across and I hadn't heard heard about him until the last couple of years but um the philosopher and psychologist Alfred Adler yeah um who I think is quite less known because he didn't really write a huge amount, but he kind of engaged more in sort of discourse. But um, there's, there's a, a nice book around it called The Courage to Be Disliked. And I, and I really like that book. Um, it's quite deep, but it's, it's a great book. Um, and certainly something that I've, I've learned 
or what's helped me through like coaching and therapy is like the ability to sort of go back to, to certain events and look at like what happened versus the sort of narrative that was created from the situations. So, you know, I, I always vividly remember. Um, and I, by the way, I used to say when I was a child, some like proper stupid things, like as, as many of us children do, do. <laughs> yeah. as, as kids do, um, but because of this sort of narrative of like always wanting to impress. And I remember my mate saying to me, Dean, you say some stupid things like genuinely and, I, and, and you'd la laugh about it. But then obviously as a child, you're trying to make sense and fill the gaps. So you're like, well, yeah, because, you know, academically, I'm not very strong and, and I do say stupid things. So, so therefore I become a stupid person. But what really helped me was going back and looking at that situation and almost like reprocessing that actually, you know, what happened was they said a bunch of words like, you know, you say stupid things. It, it doesn't have any meaning. I put the meaning to it. So if I put the meaning to it, I can go back and change the meaning. And, and that for me was just like a huge kind of lift off my shoulders and kind of went, well, that's great. I can I can do that with all sorts of situations. Um, so yeah it, it goes back to that quote as well is it the James Cooley quote that I just love and always share which is um I'm not who I think I am I'm not what you think I am I am what I think you think I am mm. which is so true in a lot of cases isn't it how often we live our life through the perceptions what we think other people think about us yeah and that we relate to people as we see them not as they are right like which is definitely true we we have a relationship with the person in our mind which is why often we struggle with the reality when reality shows up you know like actually if we could accept reality as it were we wouldn't often then be annoyed or disappointed we'd be able to accept but what we've already done is had this relationship with the dean in my mind and then Dean's not showing up as I'm imagining. So who's, whose fault is that, right? Like that's mine, because I'm putting something onto you here, not the other way around. But Dean, when you were just talking there, it was making me think about my own son. And like like you said, even that label of it being stupid, like I, I like listen to some of the things that he comes out with at the moment, which are so random. And so, you know, like you said, like just piece together bits of, yeah, like at the moment, his his latest thing is like, that's a giant, big, horrible jam, right? I don't know what's going on in his mind about jam, but um, but like, where's where does it skip over into? I'm like appreciating that and like his imagination and oh, what must be going on inside of his head and to all of a sudden that's stupid, right? All of a sudden now we've applied this label to it where taking creativity again you know like I don't know what he's you know what he's putting together in his mind to come out with this sentence it is pretty creative I don't I don't know what he's imagining but at what point then and I think this is kind of speaks to that society piece and um these teachers and you know that have kind of then imposed their views and their narrative onto you or onto other children that that's no longer acceptable that you know, and that's the bit, I guess, um, speaking back to that part in the poem, don't give them your thoughts, right? That, that's, that's the bit we need to be really guarding against because they're not your thoughts. So yeah, it just made me think of my son and the, at the moment, like, I think it's play and it's fun and it's, you know, especially language. Like if, for me, if you're playing in language and you're using um, 
slang and things like that again it's alive isn't it like you can go places with it and you can get somewhere together that you've never would have gotten otherwise but it's when it starts to get closed down by those judgments or those labels I think you guys have touched on some brilliant I've been scribbling notes all the way through that so kind of talked about acceptance and and I just think acceptance is a game changer as you said if you can just accept the reality and also comes on to kind of one of my points of questions around why is it we believe certain thoughts but not others and I, and I think I talked about this on the pod and by the time this goes out it'll be maybe a month or so ago so I can I can talk about it again and hope that no one notices which is always good um but actually you know we, we have just such random thoughts right so the one I use is I can never remember the random stuff I do think about. It's like, why, why is it I don't believe when my brain says, oh, you can fly? Like, I'm, I'm not going, yeah, I'm just going to walk up onto the balcony and jump off and give that a go. Like, I, I, I know there is a reason why I can't. But when I think, oh, I'm not good enough. Yeah, no, no, that's true. But what, there, there's, there's some thoughts that are just so much closer to the bone almost that, that they are so believable I think it's a real trap we can fall into. Um, and I think it was was Sid that shared the graphic you mentioned, Dean, and I'll, I'll put that in the show notes for those that are listening around. The, the picture is somebody swimming and they're in their thoughts. And then there's a picture of somebody in a rowing boat and they are aware of their thoughts. And, and the really subtle separation, I think, is just brilliant when you start applying that and going, am I getting caught up? So as you said, in this imagined future in thinking all these things, having an imagined relationship with somebody that, that just isn't real, or actually am I working really hard to accept the realities of what that situation is? Um, and Dean, just to kind of jump back to your quote, I, there's a brilliant one. I've got no idea who said this, but um, it goes, uh, what someone thinks of you is none of your business. And, and I always try and come back to that because again, how much of our life or our thinking time is spent oh well, well what are they thinking like we're trying to second guess all these other people and I think it is that there is a name for the fallacy of this kind of self-importance fallacy isn't it that we naturally fall into a trap where our ego says we are far more important in other people's lives than we actually are so there's this just complete jumble of all this stuff going on that we think is real and I wonder how we just come back to acceptance come back to self-awareness I what for I wonder if they're the kind of go-tos just to to get us into maybe a more healthy position where we can say I'm aware of my thoughts doesn't mean I'm gonna believe they're real or interpret them in as a reality but I can accept the reality as it is as well there's something that I really like in um emotional flexibility which speaks to your piece there around like what's the truth like you know is this thought true um like what's the reality um and it and it encourages you not necessarily to look at what the truth is because sometimes we can become quite fused with what our thoughts are and then that manifests in you know as i said earlier sort of avoidance or unhelpful behaviors but rather than what's the truth is this thought helpful or unhelpful in this moment um it's just a slightly different way of then maybe helping you to take action that might be more in alignment with something that's important to you in that moment like your values um, whereas sometimes the truth is can be lead you down the path of overthinking and getting quite stuck. I mean, whose truth, right? Because truth is a perception, isn't it? 
that there is I, I would argue from my experience there is no universal truth because we we will have the same conversation we're having an experience now but we'll have three very different views of that experience and and I always think that in conversations you know going back to coaching have a conversation with a player and I think I've been really clear and we've talked about you know deselection is probably the obvious one that's where it tends to happen most often you know we haven't selected you because xyz this is what we want you to work on abc that was really clear they, they've nailed this like i'm i'm great at this and then you walk away and you hear that they've had a conversation with someone where they've gone yeah he gave me no feedback like terrible conversation no idea what what i've got to do to work on i'm kind of going were, were they in the same conversation as me like how how has that happened and then you just go yeah it was their perception of the conversation so go back to those kind of skills around checking in and understanding and repeating and all that type of stuff like and I guess motivational interviewing is a kind of good way of doing that but actually yeah how how am I checking in on what someone else's perception of the shared experience is I, I think would be a big question and I definitely don't have there isn't an answer I don't think and I definitely don't have them but um, yeah I just think having having that awareness of that that what you've experienced isn't the reality I think is is not a bad a bad baseline to kind of keep working off I guess but can I give a take on this that I think when I've talked about um imposter phenomenon I I think often comes up and for people it can be something they've not considered before so I might frame it as self-attack like we were talking about that inner critic right like all of a sudden can start to beat up on you it dials up it gets louder and like you've just given a beautiful example there, I feel like it's often you're in a relationship with someone, something's happened, there's an event that's happened. Um, we are feeling creatures first and then the thoughts follow to make sense of, you know, that create the narrative, right? So what, what kind of um, story am I telling about this? So my experience often has been that when self-attack is dialing up, it's often as a result of some feelings towards the person that you're in a relationship with so let's say I'm the athlete you're the coach you're giving me some feedback I don't want to hear I'm going to have a reaction to that right like of course but how is it that if I don't feel comfortable with feeling angry towards somebody in authority or I don't feel comfortable feeling angry towards you as my coach or I just don't feel comfortable feeling angry full stop what we tend to find, particularly in psychology, is that it has to find some release, right? Like your feelings don't go nowhere, right? They, they then stay inside. And so people can often find, and if you think back and you, you kind of, you look at several examples of where that, either that imposter voice has gotten really loud or the self-attack has gotten really loud, it'll often come about from some interaction with somebody where you had pretty strong feelings towards them. And it might not just be anger, it might be jealousy or envy, or um, I guess those are the, some of the most common that, that come up when I've spoken to people. Um, like I could be jealous that you are getting something and then I start to attack myself. I start to say, I'm not good enough or, um, actually that could never be me because I'm a fraud and they're gonna they're gonna find out soon and so often just again that ability to be able to look at how do I actually feel towards the other person in this situation I think can really be a game changer for people because people will say to me I've I've never thought about it I don't know I'm like I'm so caught up in the self-attack like I'm so beating up on myself I don't actually even consider the other person 
but it, it does tie back into what you've both talked about, which is if you think about our earliest relationships, we are literally dependent on them for survival. So we need to protect them. So to protect them, I turn it back on me. Mm. It's, it's, it's literally like, I think Adler's like top line, it's like all behaviors interconnected, interdependent. It really speaks to that nicely. Yeah. Because again, like some of the sort of like models that I've latched onto like previously and, and, and really shifted more towards like we've spoken about emotional fitness and um, emotional flexibility and mindfulness how it seems a lot of advice that I see out there is really about how we deal with feelings through trying to rationalize everything through like you know thinking our way through something or pushing through it or trying to control it and actually maybe it's just my personal experiences and, and certainly what I've seen useful with clients is actually just um, taking a more mindful approach of like really sort of checking in with feelings and emotions um, you know is, is could, could be more helpful than trying to you know think your way through it yeah because it's another defense right it's like a way of bypassing again um like it's that disconnection we come up into our head but we feel in our body you know like, so even when you ask people well where do you feel it what like that that's the shocking question for people because they're like no I'm thinking it I'm thinking I'm happy or I'm thinking I'm angry or I'm thinking I'm sad but that's that's not how emotions work. They live in us. So it, it, it is absolutely really critical to be in that. But I, I think maybe speaking to your point, Dean, I think people conflate things that they've seen. You know, like if somebody sees somebody getting explosive and aggressive, they think that's anger and it's not. Or, you know, and so it can be really hard to, I guess, help untangle that. If you've had past experiences where you've had bad experiences and seen something that's maybe been more aggressive or people flying off the handle or violent or and you are associating that with anger then it makes complete sense that people are like I don't want to go near anger I don't want to feel that you know I don't want to lose control but that's not what anger is so you know just again by being able to really educate ourselves around how important these feelings are anger is about setting a boundary and a limit it's about saying no um, it's about being able to hold a position. Um, it's not about violently lashing out or, you know, and I think that there can just be a lot of confusion that's out there because also we aren't taught this stuff, are we? Nobody sits down in school and says, alongside math, science and English, we're going to talk about your emotions. And yeah, sadly. It's amazing. Suze, can I challenge that? Because I think sure. we probably have a different perspective on it slightly, which I think is really good. Um, so you said yeah. feelings don't go anywhere. Do you think there's a tipping point to the feelings we retain? Because because I think, and I, I can only talk from, you know, my experience of my feelings, I feel like there'll probably be hundreds of feelings I have every day that just come and go. Like it's a constant stream almost, isn't it? So it's it's um, like the tachograph, you know, for an earthquake, it's 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 just chugging along, flat line, and then it's going to start going, and there's going to be some really big feelings that maybe I retain if I don't, accept or manage or deal with or kind of use whatever terminology but when you say feelings don't go anywhere are you talking about all feelings or is there yeah. certain certain feelings or kind of how how do you see that no and I'm glad you've um, picked me up on this because I wasn't clear so if you're not addressing the feeling because if you think about a feeling it's literally designed to evoke action right that's that's why we don't want to cut off our feelings because then you get depressed right you get 
um, you know, like apathy or you've got no motivation. So um, no, let me correct myself. What I mean is if you're not using that feeling in a healthy way, that then moves you towards taking an action. So like anger in a healthy way, if you're having some kind of interaction with somebody and they're being dismissive or rude, might be then to set a boundary or to say, I'm not going to continue this conversation or whatever it might be. If you're not using your feeling in a way that then helps you to then take that action, that's what I mean, it, it doesn't then dissipate, right? You've had this anger reaction come up, and then let's say it didn't feel safe enough to have that expression of that feeling in that moment. What do people do? They come away and they ruminate on all the things that they could have said at like two o'clock in the morning, right? Like it's that familiar, this is what it would have been great for me to do. Or like we were talking about, they turn it on themselves, right? Like, why didn't I say that? Why didn't I take a step? Why do I let myself be a walkover? That kind of thing. So and, and eventually, I think what you see is often, I often talk to people about the reservoir of feelings. So if they do this chronically, and it could be, like I say, it could be with their grief, if they're constantly blocking that, they're constantly shutting that down. People, I mean, it sits inside of us. This is literally another way into depression, right? If you block your grief, you end up being depressed. So um, it has an impact what you what you do or don't do with your feelings absolutely has an impact but I agree with you we're feeling things all the time but we've become so disconnected that when you'll often say to people like how do you feel most commonly you'll get I don't know okay fine and I'll say okay and fine aren't feelings so let's go again how do you feel you know like because they're not right they're, that, that doesn't tell me anything about how you're feeling um, but yeah thank you for picking me up on that because it's not that we they just sit inside of us absolutely not we're supposed to be doing something with them no that's really useful thank you i i hadn't found this maybe until about six months ago but i th i can't uh, is it the, the feelings wheel there's so there's the massive kind of color chart and it just starts off with i guess like the core feelings in the middle and then just as the layers grow out and i've, I've genuinely just found that really interesting just to kind of sit with some of them and go like what's the difference between that one and that one and and you know whether it's i can't even think of a good example which is which is bad but you know what's the difference between um sadness and something you know just just what's just to the right of sadness because not everything is sad right like there's there's variances within this and i find that fascinating to try and work out well, what what caused me to be one on one day and another and whether again whether there's an answer or whether it's just helpful to be more aware of of that but I feel like it's a really useful tool and again I'll, I'll link it to the show notes if anyone hasn't seen it because I do feel like it's quite a good resource just to expand on our um, terminology which I've done very poorly in that example I will I will admit but. <laughs> I know what you're talking about and one point to that so I, I think there's something about that emotional literacy piece that is really important because we're not you know like if you've not had the experience of being you know like helping scaffold you know people around you say oh I wonder if you look sad or I wonder it you know like that's how we learn how to put the words to things right it's not that necessarily we just know that that is what happens when you next look at that wheel, what I would encourage you to do, though, is also think about um, what are, so the thing that I think gets blended with this, which is less helpful, is where people say, maybe like one of them might say something like dismissed, right? Like I feel dismissed. I will often then have to say to somebody, 
but that's what happened, right? That's not a feeling, that is actually what happened. Somebody dismissed you. So how do you feel about being dismissed? So I think what that wheel does nicely is it has our core feelings, but I think it can blend a little bit about what has actually happened. What's the stimulus, if we were to put it that way? Because being dismissed isn't necessarily a feeling, it's an action, right? Like if somebody is rude and dismissive to you, that's what they've done. And then we have a reaction to that. So I, that's my only gripe with that wheel um, is to say that I think they can blend sometimes what's actually happened, what's the stimulus that's triggered the emotional reaction. There's a really, um, that, that's a really lovely explanation of, um, I'll be stealing that. That's great. I, um, there's, a, there's a book that i um, read in the last couple of years that has really stuck with me it was from Lisa Feldman Barrett, the How Emotions Are Made. Yeah. Like just, you know, how emotions are constructed. And that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, this makes like a lot of sense and really speaks to the complexity, but in a in, in a simple way. And she talks, doesn't she, around the emotional sort of vocabulary that we can expand rather than just using kind of binary, I'm either sad or I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean. I do think it's lovely that we've got different words for it. I don't think we want to be really pernickety about like, no, it's got to be grief or it's got, you know, like, because that you're right, it's on a spectrum, isn't it? It doesn't just happen in this one particular way. I just find that um, we have a real tendency to mix up actually what's happened versus our response to it, our reaction to it. How, and I'm, I was just about to say to Dean, maybe we leave the control versus, you know, illusion of control for another day, because I, I feel like we wouldn't do it justice with the amount of time we, we're probably going to have left. But how much do, would you guys suggest we are in control of what we think and feel? Because I think there's probably, I definitely see a lot of people suggesting we, we really can control that. And, and we are, you know, we have ownership of that. And then um, which is this is where probably more where I would align there's a lot of people that would just say we, we've got absolutely zero control so why why do we worry about it why do we try and do all these things to to manage it and and just again just let it come let it go it, it will it will pass through us almost so interested where where you guys sit and maybe this tees up a conversation for a, a repeat and we come on and, and get a little bit more into it but I, I feel like yeah it's worth it's worth getting into but I'm just not sure we've got enough time I, I guess for me again just a real high level summary I, you know we look at we look at the internal organs that we experience you know blood flow and heart beating and we wouldn't necessarily question you know that it's actually an automated response and it happens outside of our control so it begs the question you know when it comes to our thoughts like what leads us to think that we have control over our thoughts um, and, and maybe it's a language thing because I, I would really sort of lean into more, you know, words like, you know, harnessing and, you know, sitting with and, you know, working with. And, and, and I think um, it's just that language of control that we spoke about earlier that perhaps actually whilst intentional to make ourselves get back into the moment or choose our values more effectively, um, it could actually unintentionally create us more challenges for it through the pure action of trying to do something with it or control it um so that's kind of yeah where i would maybe sit with it what do you reckon Suze? it would be interesting to know how you're defining what yeah what control is here in the context of this um my mind went to then and there here and now 
So like so much of our here and now, as we've talked about, you know, as we were talking about already today is influenced by then and there, something that's happened in the past and now what we're expecting or anticipating on a really, again, unconscious outside of your awareness level. So, um, so much of what we do, I think we like to think we're in control of and we are, I'm making this decision and, you know, I'm, I'm fully aware of that and this is why I've made the decision. But when we start to unpack that, you know, um, to give an example, to bring it to life, I remember working with a guy actually in terms of thinking about um, like his career and very intelligent guy uh, and told me he'd completely bombed out of um, his university degree. And then what came about was actually because it didn't make sense, right? Like here's a really capable guy sat in front of me, but he's telling me he completely flunked his exams and he partied way too much. And he he kind of, he wasn't really aware of why, but what happened was we impact that it was linked to um, his dad who had wanted him to do the degree in the first place. And he did not want to do that degree. And so this really was an act of defiance, right? Like, I'm not going to give you that degree that you want, but was completely outside of his awareness. All he knew was he was partying really hard. He was not revising as much as he could have. He was a very capable man. So he, he did pass, but he didn't get the grades that he was expected to get. So I think it's like, we can have a sense of why we think we do things. And then we can start to unpack and uncover these layers of meaning that then did really make sense to him, right? Like actually, it's he was compliant initially and he went along and did the degree that his dad wanted him to do but the only way he could express his autonomy was through a defiant position of not getting the grade that would make his dad happy so I don't know if that helps to bring it to life but I think that's the kind of thing that I, I tend to experience a lot in the clinic like we'll be sat there trying to work out and piece together bits and then things come forward and then you have a better understanding and then you are better informed the next time around. But um, I, I like to think, I think we think, we like to think we're in control of a lot and, and then, yeah, life shows up and we realise we're not so much or we're acting on these previous patterns. But we like the feeling of like being in control, don't we? It's like the illusion, yeah. we like the illusion of it, but actually like what's the reality of having control? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think you both have put that brilliantly and it's, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Just why, why we want to believe that e even when we're maybe shown in any form that we're not, we still want to cling on to an illusion of control. And I, I, yeah, and I mean, it's the fixer in me wanting to share that and it's the ego kind of going, here's, here's a solution. But I personally, I've just found acceptance is, is such a big step in relinquishing some of that desire to to want to have control and just it, it the, the phrase it is what it is do you know that that is just incredibly useful i think just to be able to go yeah like how, how much of this can i actually change like i can't so why why do we spend so much time as people working ourselves up about things and getting upset and stressed and all and all this type of stuff on probably i don't know 95 percent of the things we have literally zero control over and i just it's it's a weird one and maybe there is no no solution for everybody but i feel like there's we'd, we'd be better off as a species if we if we could find some sort of better answer but um yeah there we go um 
guys, I'm, I'm going to have to, uh, yeah, we'll have to wrap this up because um, it's, it's been a brilliant, brilliant conversation, but I'm conscious you've both got lives to live, so I can't keep you all day. Um, thank you so much. I said, I've absolutely loved this. It's It's been brilliant for me, and I hope you guys have enjoyed it as well. Thank um, you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I quickly round up the roundup to all those listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to the guys for coming on and contributing to a brilliant discussion. As always, links to the content uh, discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. Mm-hmm.